All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, for your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we just thank you for the privilege of sitting at your feet. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and have your way with us. Guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you turn, if you would, to Daniel chapter 1. While you're doing that, happy Mother's Day. Everybody get it up for Mother's? So, um, you know, I always uh, give some acknowledgement here on Mother's Day. Honestly, uh, mothering is a, is a great piece of our faith. It's a great piece of our society. Um, it, uh, I believe God honors it uh, more than our world does. And so if you're a mother, God bless you. And, uh, and yet, as I say that, I also am not naive. You know, Mother's Day is a day full of a range of emotions. And I, I understand this. And, you know, the reality is, you know, Mother's Day sort of reminds us of sort of a depth of human relationship that oftentimes it kind of brings to light the fact that, you know, we live in a frail world. You know, many of us, maybe our mothers aren't here. Um, you know, relationships can be difficult. Just a whole myriad of things uh, that can be challenging. And so let me just say, mothers, for your efforts, God acknowledges it. And uh, God, uh, I think, sees it in the right perspective. And for those of us who are uh, the recipients of motherhood, it's a great opportunity to say thanks. And so um, uh, if you have that opportunity today, um, let me encourage you to do that. So, everybody make it to Daniel chapter 1? That was kind of a yep, nope, yawn. There's a whole, there was, there was anything but a resounding yup out of that. So with that, we're going to, uh, we're going to the wall. All right? How you like that? Are we high tech around here or what? I, I think I commented on that last week. I'll do it, might even do it next week. We'll be out of this section next week, but I might just show the slide just to show you that I can. Um, but anyway... Um, nation of Israel, the Old Testament's about the nation of Israel, and why do we know about, the, why do we care about the nation of Israel? Because who comes out of the nation of Israel that we care about? Well, a lot of them, but Jesus, first and foremost. And so we're studying, really, Jesus' family, if you will, okay? And in the Old Testament history, you, you may or may not know, uh, there was King David, and then there was his son Solomon, and then, during, uh, and then Solomon had a son by the name of Rehoboam. And during the reign of Rehoboam, the nation was split into what's called the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, they were both pretty wicked, frankly. Uh, the northern kingdom was very wicked. There was, there was sort of never a time of spiritual reform. And as a result of that, uh, God had to deal with them according to his, 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 his warnings and, and really as a matter of integrity, if God didn't deal with them, God would have uh, not followed through. But uh, so the Assyrian Empire uh, took out the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. 
And so we're fast-forwarding now about 150-ish years later uh, towards the end of the kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Judah had a few good kings, mostly bad kings, and then a little bit of back and forth, sometimes of reform, sometimes of, of, um, of rejection of the Lord and, and all of that. And so uh, we take it to the, basically the end of the reign of Judah. And the last good king was a guy by the name of Josiah. And um, he had three sons, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. I'm going through this again because I, I don't think I was very clear last week. I was, we're, I was talking with my, with my um, what's the word I use? With my editorial review board uh, over, over Sunday lunch. And, and, uh, and I, I think that I wasn't quite fully uh, clear. So I'm going to be so rock solid, crystal clear today. You're going to... Say wow. <laughs> just say it. Just, just say it. Wow. See? See, you did. So, Josiah. So, during the reign of Josiah, there's a little bit of a worldwide power struggle. And just think of this. The Assyrian Empire, I told you, 150 years prior, took out the nation of, of Israel, the northern kingdom. They are the world-dominating empire for a long time, and they were, frankly, ruthless. Okay? Well, they're kind of winding down. The nation of Egypt is a bit of a worldwide power, and then over, I, got, I always do the map backwards. So the nation of Egypt is a worldwide power, Assyrians are up north, they're a worldwide power, and Babylon is just sort of uh, starting to rise to the, to the forefront, if you will. So that's sort of the, the uh, worldwide tension you got going on. And during the nation, and you got to also understand geographically, God is very interested in the nation of Israel, even today, because it's a major crossroads of three continents. And uh, maybe next week I'll put up, I didn't think to do it, but uh, put up a map of Israel. But, you know, if you think about Israel in the, in the worldwide stage, you know, uh, Africa is down here, Europe is over here, and Asia is over here. So it's a major crossroads. And so um, Josiah, when he was the king of Judah, uh, the king of Egypt was coming up, and he was going to fight against the king of Assyria in kind of a power play. Josiah basically kind of got in the middle of it and uh, was killed by the king of Egypt. King of Egypt then, uh, after Josiah was killed, kind of, uh, in a sense, took control of Jerusalem and put Jehoahaz on the throne of Jerusalem, of, of Judah at Jerusalem. That only lasted for three months. He took him out, took him off to Egypt, and then placed Jehoiakim on the throne. Okay, Jehoiakim is Jehoiahaz's brother. So Jehoiakim, all this happens at, at 609 when he uh, is removed and Jehoiakim is placed on the throne. That's at 609 B.C. And, um, and then uh, in 605 B.C., a famous battle of Carchemish, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who's the uh, royal prince at that time of Babylon, he's fighting Egypt and he wins the battle of Carchemish, and along the way he takes uh, Jerusalem, and uh, he takes all the stuff out of Jerusalem, or not all of it, but some of it, and several of the captives, including Daniel, and I'm going to call them Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, unfortunately, we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'll talk, we talked about that last week. I'll review that again. Uh, but anyway... Uh, where I think I was, I was misleading, historians don't 
fully, uh, and it's a, it's a little bit in the, in the, even in the context of Scripture, it's a little confusing exactly where Jehoiakim dies. But when Nebuchadnezzar uh, conquers, uh, or conquers Jerusalem in 605, he leaves Jehoiakim on the throne as sort of a vassal king, okay? So Jehoiakim is left there uh, in Jerusalem. And then finally in 598, 597, uh, Nebuchadnezzar returns to Jerusalem. Uh, Jehoiakim is killed during that siege. And whether he's killed in Jerusalem and taken back, because one of the references in Kings says he's taken to Babylon, Probably that means his dead body is taken to Babylon, or at least partly there. Um, and again, it's a little bit confusing. There's some prophecy of Jeremiah that says he's not going to be given a proper burial. He's going to be buried like a donkey. Um, all that to say, he's in Jerusalem from 609 to 597, and then he's killed. And in 597, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's taken another group off to Babylon. Ezekiel goes in that group. And then finally in 586, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's had enough of it. it uh, after in 597, he he removes Jehoiakim um, and places Zedekiah on the throne. 597 to 586, Zedekiah is on the throne. 586, Nebuchadnezzar <coughs> finally is done with it. Lays siege to Jerusalem, takes everybody off. So, everybody got it? What are you thinking? That's what I thought you were thinking. So, so for our purposes. Um, Nebuchadnezzar comes in 605, in 597, and in 586. And finally in 586. And the point, the point spiritually is that's a lot of warning time from the Lord, right? From 605 to 586, right? And uh, God has given warning after warning after warning. That's one piece of it. The second piece is God is, bring, God is allowing the Babylonians to kind of bring these these prisoners into Babylon. And so the ones we're talking about for our purposes here are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They go over in 605 BC, okay? And so now they're living in Babylon. And as a part of that, they're going to have influence in Babylon. And so now we see this struggle, much like we experienced today, what we talked about last week, there's this struggle about who's influencing who. Fair enough? So that sort of sets the stage for all of that. I hope that's clear as mud. All right? Now, spiritually, it's been said by several commentators, the theme of this book of Daniel is really to point out the sovereignty of God. We use that. It's a three-letter word. All right, we're medium tech. All right, how's that? Um, the sovereignty of God is a $3 word for God is in control. God is in control. We think that we're in control so often in our daily decisions, in our daily lives. And I always think, some of you heard me say this before, and one of my, probably my favorite example of this in all the scripture is, you know, around the time Jesus was born, who was the emperor of the Roman Empire? Caesar Augustus, right? Remember Luke chapter 2? In the days of Caesar Augustus, he issued a decree that that all the world should be taxed, right? If you were like a reporter in those days, and you had a conversation with Caesar Augustus, you'd say, who's in control of the world? What would he have said? I am. 
I am absolutely in control of the world. I'm so in control of the world, I can move, peop- I can move people around like pawns wherever I want. As a matter of fact, we need a little more money in the treasury. I'm going to register everybody in the Roman Empire to be registered so we can levy some more taxes on them. And everybody's got to go back to their homeland. So Joseph and Mary wind up going where? To Bethlehem. So that the Messiah, and by the way, she's pregnant. So that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, can be born in Bethlehem because that was prophesied hundreds of years prior. Now, if I'm a reporter, I ask you, who was in control in the world at that point in time? God Almighty. Right? Could it be that maybe we're not as in control as we think we are? Right? And so... You know, we need to be responsible and all that, but the reality is we're not as in control as we think we are. And God is truly sovereign. And, and, and the, really, if there's a theme of this book of Daniel, it's the sovereignty of God, and we see it played out beautifully. So, I want to review a little bit from last week. Is that okay if I review a little bit from last week? Good. Thank you. You beg for enthusiasm, you get it sooner or later. So, personally... We start off, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure, of, into the treasure house of his God. So this is what we talked about earlier. This is the first, if you will, deportation. This would be in 606 to 605, really 605 by the time they came, across, came out. 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem, and he's basically taking uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, certainly other captives, to uh, Babylon, and uh, some articles of silver and gold, and now Daniel and his friends are carried off captive. Now, keep in mind, most historians would say Daniel and these guys are young teenagers, like 14, 15 years old type guys right? Picture in your mind, if you can get your head around this, you're a 14-year-old boy, okay? You have just been taken from your family, from your homeland, from everything you've known, and carried off by what you know to be an evil, ruthless empire, and you're going into, the, into their land, as a prisoner of, prisoner of war, basically. 14, 15 years old. They would likely have had godly parents because, as we talked about last week, and we'll talk about, just mention them here in, in a minute, they were given godly names. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Those are godly names. So we can presume a little bit, if you will, that they had godly parents. They were ripped away from them. They were quite possibly, uh, they, you know, says verse 3, then the king instructed Ashpenaz, master of the eunuchs, to bring some of these guys in. So basically, uh, there's a good chance these 14-year-old boys are made, made eunuchs upon their arrival. 
So things are not going well for these guys. And I think sometimes we just read this, or maybe we read about Daniel in the lion's den, or we read about Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego not bowing down to the golden statue. And, and we don't, I think it's important that we keep our, try to get our heads around the context. The context is, you're a 14-year-old young man carried off to Babylon as a prisoner of war, ripped away from your homeland, your family, and everything you knew. And certainly no, um, no clue what's about to happen. So upon the arrival, verse 4 we read, that they're taught the language and literature of the Chaldeans for three years of training, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. So they're going to have an opportunity to serve before the king. So we might think, all right, that sounds cool, but you're still in Babylon. They're also appointed, we read in verse 5, they're appointed the daily provisions of the king's delicacies and wine. Now maybe these guys are trying to sort of sucker punch us a little bit. Right? And we talked about this a little bit last week. Clearly this is an indoctrination from Babylon. And so these, these young men are taken prisoners of war and they're being indoctrinated into the ways of Babylonian culture. Please capture this. Because Babylon, I said this last week, I'll probably continue to say it, Babylon was a physical, historical empire. You can see it in all of history, even outside of the Bible, to verify the facts of the Bible, right, historically, that Babylon was a real entity, right? But we mentioned last week, Babylon really started with the Tower of Babel, all the way back in Genesis, and the Babylon sort of um, reference goes all the way to almost all the way to the end of, of Revelation, right? Babylon in, the, in, the, in Revelation is a ruling empire that's yet to come that we're going to start reading about in the next couple of weeks, or we'll, we'll reference them in the next couple of weeks. It's a ruling empire that's yet to come that's probably what you know we often hear of as the one world government uh, a religious political and economic system that sort of brings the world together in unity during the tribulation period right and so babylon is not just this nation we're talking about with nebuchadnezzar as the king babylon is the world system that is antagonistic to the purposes of god Okay, and so in that context, we still live with this dynamic tension uh, of a Babylonian ideal, if you will. Does that make sense? So we live in this sort of Babylonian system. We might call it the United States of America, but we could just as well call it a Babylonian system, right? And does the Babylonian system that exists in the United States of America try to indoctrinate us? try to weaken our senses, maybe with the king's delicacies and wine? Yeah. Try to teach us the language and the literature of the Babylonian system? Yeah, absolutely. Beware. Beware. I can't emphasize this strongly enough. Beware of the indoctrination of the world through media, through education, 
through political and sociological and even economic pressures. They are real as they've ever been. And if that weren't enough for these four guys, we mentioned last week, the, word Daniel, the name Daniel means God is my judge. They changed his name to Belshazzar, which means Bel's prince. Bel was the na- national god of Babylon. The name Hananiah means beloved by the Lord. They changed his name to Shadrach, which means illumined by the sun god. The name Mishael means who is as God. Then they changed his name to Meshach, which is who is like Shak. Shak was a reference to the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. And the name Azariah means the Lord is my help, and they changed his name to Abednego, which means servant of Nego, who was the equivalent of Lucifer. Keep in mind, Babylon today, and I, again I speak metaphorically today because we don't have a, 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 a literal Babylon as we do here in these pages, but Babylon today would like to change our thinking and our identity. You get this? They want to give them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. They also want to change their name. And in the Jewish culture, honestly, much more than today. I mean, today we have names, right? How do you get a name today? If you're a young couple trying to pick out a name. Well, you get one of these name books online, right? And you say, oh, that name sounds sweet. I won't even mention a name because I'm going to reference somebody that you know. or You'll think I'm insulting your third cousin, right? You know, you, see, you get a name, you think, oh, that sounds sweet. It's got a nice ring to it, right? And then your, <clears throat> and then your wife says, no, remember, Uncle Charlie's got a dog by that name. We can't use that name, right? Right? So we all go through this, right? So we pick out names kind of how they sound, or like randomly or whatever. To the Jewish culture, they picked out names deliberately and intentionally, and it meant something to be called Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. That meant something. And so these Chaldeans, these, these Babylonians, are trying to change the thinking and the identity of these captives. Babylon today tries to, tries to influence our thinking and our identity. Can I just say this? I, I, I can't emphasize it strongly enough. Be careful. Be careful. So that's the, you know, if you want, if you want to hear me rant more on that, listen to the recording from last week. I ranted more on that last week. But just as a matter of introduction, right, we're reviewing from last week. So what does Daniel, think about this, what did Daniel and these guys, how do they respond to this? You know, I said, put yourself in that situation. You're a 14-year-old young man. You've been carried off to Babylon. They're trying to uh, educate you into the ways of the, of the Babylonian culture. They're trying to maybe weaken your senses a little bit with the food and the drink. And they're trying to change your identity by changing your name, right? How do you respond to that? Verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, up to now, 
Interestingly, we read these first seven verses, which there's a lot in those first seven verses. We read those first seven verses, and there's not a word mentioned about what Daniel did, how he responded, what Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego did, how they responded. Did they, you know, you picture, like, I mean, if, 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 you were, if you ripped me from my family, from my homeland as a young teenager, right, and you wrote a story about it, there'd probably be some, like, description there about me kicking and screaming, right? Now, we don't know if they did or they didn't. But it's interesting to me, at least, that there's no reference of them kicking and screaming. You know, when Joseph got carried off, you know, remember when Joseph's brothers sold him off to Egypt, right? And then later they're talking about it. They said, yeah, we remember what anguish and basically how he was kicking and screaming when we sent him off to Egypt. So no doubt, you know, that's a part of that narrative. We don't know if that was a part of this narrative or not. I happen to think, based on the way the rest of the scripture, or the rest of this chapter is written, I happen to think, and I, I personally think, they didn't do a lot of kicking and screaming. Probably wouldn't have done any good, right? But there's a good chance that they didn't. But I think, if I can kind of, if I can give us a take-home message, here's the take-home message. How? H-O-W. How Daniel handled himself mattered. Mattered hugely. So, let's look at this. First of all, he purposed in himself, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He's not going to eat this, he doesn't want to eat this, uh, the king's delicacies or drink the wine. Now, it's interesting, with all that's happened thus far, this is where he seems to draw the line. Some say the food wouldn't have been kosher, right? Um, no doubt, you know, the Babylonians, when they're trying to indoctrinate these, these young men, they're not worried about kosher Jewish food, right? This is the king's delicacies, the Babylonian king's delicacies. Um, some say that maybe because of that, that's why Daniel, like, that was too much for him. You know, but the wine would have been allowed, uh, according to the law of Moses, and so some say that probably the most likely uh, conclusion is that uh, this food that's part of the king's uh, provision would have somehow been tied to pagan idol worship. And Daniel didn't want that to, according to the word, defile himself. Does that make sense? You may recall in 1 Corinthians... Uh, there was a lot of debate within the church, right? Should we eat food that's been sacrificed to idols, right? In the, in the marketplace, in the Gentile nations, uh, in the first century, uh, the, you know, the Gentile nations, they'd have the, they'd have these, the food that they'd sacrifice to um, these pagan idols, and then the leftover food, leftover stuff that wasn't used up in the idol worship, they'd take it to the meat market, right? And, yeah, it's leftover, you can't waste it. And so then, you know, Joe, first century Christian, goes to the meat market, and some people felt like you shouldn't eat that, and some people felt like, hey, it's food. I'm not worshiping demons. Why should I care? And so there was a little bit of a, of a struggle there. We've, we've talked about that in the past. But in Daniel's case, there's probably some, uh, some deep 
conviction that he has that if he eats this food, it's going to somehow tie him into pagan worship. Like, okay, I'm okay reading about your culture and learning your language, but I can't eat your food. I don't want that to become part of me. Does that make sense? And so that's where he seems to draw the line. Now, I have to ask myself, and, and bear with me, I'm speculating a little bit. I have to ask myself, when did Daniel purpose in his heart that he wasn't going to do this? I happen to think that it was probably not while he's got his fork and his plate in his hand and he's at the buffet line. Right? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you've been to pitch. I've seen you guys at pitch-ins. Right? You've seen me at pitch-ins. Right? And here's how it goes. You're standing at the dessert table trying to decide if you should stick to your diet or not. Right? Can I suggest that's not the best time and place to make that decision? You're not rational. Fair enough? And as I've said before, I say it to all my patients, it's easier to say no to the first cookie than the 31st cookie. Is that right? Thank you. You all should have done that. Only one did. The 31st cookie, right? When you've had your 30th, you're trying to decide, you know, I'm on this, I'm on this 30 only cookie diet. Wonder if I should go for the 31st, right? It's way easier to say no to the first one, right? So when did, what do you think Daniel purposed in his heart? I am not going to defile myself with the king's delicacies. I happen to believe that he did it some way prior. Does that make sense? And can I suggest for us, we should have, again, not for the sake of religious duty. I hope you get this. I don't, I don't want any of us to do anything because of religious duty. But I do want, at least in my own life, I want to live a life that honors God in response to what he's already done for me. He died on a cross for me. So I want to honor him with my life. But in so doing, there's some things I realize I'm a human being. In my flesh dwells no good thing, Paul says. And so I know that there are certain things that are tempting to me, as I'm sure you are too. And the best way to deal with that, number one, is to focus on the Lord and ask for the power of his Holy Spirit to guide me and strengthen me through those times. But certainly another piece of that is if I decide beforehand that I'm just not going to go there, then I can purpose in my heart when I'm removed from the temptation, I can purpose in my heart if and when that time ever comes, I'm not going to go there. And better yet, I think there are some things I can do in my life, and you guys understand what I'm talking about, there are some things I can do in my life to restrict myself, to distance myself even from that temptation, right? I mean, if I struggle with alcohol, and I've now been delivered from alcohol, and the Lord is, you know, uh, you know, help me get through that or whatever, but I still, you know, I still have that temptation. 
I might not drive past my favorite bar on the way home from work every day and drive real slow when I get to that favorite bar and say, I wonder if I should go in there or not. That's the wrong time and place to make that decision. That decision should be made removed from the temptation and removed in time. Does that make sense? I think there's a real sense that Daniel had previously purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. Notice how he handles that. So in his mind, he's already purposed in his heart. He's not going to do this. Therefore, what did he do? He took that piece of meat and he threw it in the chief of the eunuch's face and he said, you can tell the king what to do with this. Is that what he said? No. He said, therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. How he answers matters. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 28 says, The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. You ever met somebody that's no, with no filter? You know what they got? No filter. Right? How powerful are their words? You know, let's say they got no filter, but they're talking, some, they're talking about truth. Let's say they're talking about some, let's say they got some deep-rooted conviction that even you agree with, but they got no filter, right? And just, as the proverb says, pours out, right? How much credibility do they have to the listener? Honestly, very little. Very little. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. It is important to have convictions. We should all have convictions. If we're Christian, there should be certain convictions we should have. And by the way, they don't all have to be the same. I mean, there are some absolutes of Scripture, but there's some gray areas of Scripture. Is that fair? There's some gray areas in terms of how we, I mean, you know, God doesn't tell us what kind of car to, to drive or, or not drive or, you know, there's there's some, there's some latitude in our, in our decision-making capacity as Christian people being led by the Holy Spirit. And there are some things, you know, apart from, you know, just what kind of car we should drive or whatever like that, there are some things that it's okay for us to have deep-rooted convictions. But let me just say this. How we express those convictions really, really matters. Daniel is going to go through his life, <clears throat> and I want you to catch this as we go through this, these chapters, right? For the next two or three months, we're probably going to do this. I want you to catch this. Daniel is a man of great, maybe like, I'm trying to think, maybe with the exception of Joseph, maybe like no other in the, in the Old Testament. Daniel is going to be a man of great influence. Daniel is going to stand before kings and they're going to ask for his input. Kings of like the most powerful nations in the world. Is that crazy? Do you want to be a person of influence? Then how you answer matters. Daniel is going to go through his entire life as a man of great influence. And part of that influence, now uh, the the real answer there is it's because of the sovereignty of God. We talked about that earlier. 
But at least from an earthly standpoint, part of this has to do with how Daniel carries himself. How Daniel carries himself. And interestingly, he probably uh, is an example to his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, because it says here, Daniel purposed in his heart. And so these guys are going to kind of, in a sense, come along the coattails of Daniel as part of the deal. Fair enough? How Daniel responds, how Daniel handles himself, how Daniel has previously purposed in his heart not to defile himself really, really matters, especially when he's facing Babylon. And today we are facing Babylon. And so how we handle ourselves like Daniel did really, really matters. And it greatly affects our influence. There's a pastor that I, that I know that I've heard him say several times, um, we want to be people of influence, not of power. When we rule, right, like sometimes we're, we're given positions of authority. When we rule, we want to rule not with power, but with influence. Influence. Daniel is a man of great influence. So, he respectfully asks the, uh, the chief of the eunuchs, could he please not defile himself? Now, verse 9, God had, catch the grammar, God had, past tense, brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. I don't think that happened accidentally. I think it happened, number one, by the sovereignty of God, and number two, because Daniel carried himself in the way I'm talking about. Daniel didn't rant and rave about being carried off captive. He's handling himself in an honorable way. How do we handle ourselves in the face of unbelievers? Think about this. How do we handle ourselves in the face of unbelievers? You know, I, I love my day job as a doctor. It, it, it engages me in this community. It also engages me with lots of unbelievers. And so I get to hear from them. And honestly, it's crazy how transparent people can be in a doctor's office. It's crazy. And I hear them share, oftentimes, their perceptions of Christianity and of Christians. Sometimes it's favorable. Too often, it's not. I wonder if we all handled ourselves like Daniel if our influence in the world of unbelievers would be a little more credible. I wonder if we all handled ourselves like Daniel, would our influence in the face of unbelievers be a little more credible? I think oftentimes, as Christians, I know when I'm trying to talk to somebody about the Lord or about whatever, spiritually, get, you know, get a spiritual conversation going, a lot of what I have to do is undo 
the past damage that's been done to that person. Does that make sense? Well, you know, I went to that church one time and, you know, and I'm like, well, that's because that wasn't the perfect church. We are the perfect church, right? No, I don't say that. You know, but I say, you know, we are all frail and I'm as frail as anybody. And I can say stupid things and do stupid things as well as anybody. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the Lord. We're talking about the God of the Bible. We're talking about the authenticity of his desire to have a relationship with each and every one of us. So much so that he died on a cross for us. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about whether somebody offended you in church. And so it's almost like we have to undo some of that. But yet on the other hand, what an opportunity we have. You think about this. When the world I don't want to lump too bad, but I'm going to lump pretty bad right now. Can I lump real bad just for a second? Just for the sake of education, okay? When the world thinks that we're all jerks, that's an opportunity, right? Check this out. You know what you got to be? Hold on to your seats. You know what you got to be? Nice. Gracious. Have an interest in that other person. Maybe be willing to pray for that person. Maybe say, bless your heart. Maybe say, whatever, as a gesture of kindness. And if they find out that we're a Christian, or maybe they know beforehand that we're a Christian, that we're a Christian that acts like that. I can't tell you how many times I've kind of experienced where they're like, wow, you're like, that's like a, that's like a different kind of Christianity. Yes, it is. It needs to be authentic. And so, you know, again, I'm not trashing the church, but there is a perception out there a little bit, right? So if they think we're jerks, it's a great opportunity. All you got to do is not be a jerk. <laughs> What'd you learn in Sunday in church? Not to be a jerk? That's right. So, the God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. This guy kind of likes Daniel. Verse 10. And the chief of the eunuchs, he had a problem with this though. Right? He likes Daniel. He wants to accommodate Daniel. But he said to Daniel, You know, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. Now we're going to read next week. I'll just read you the verse just because it's kind of descriptive. Next week the king is going to have a dream. Right? And he's going to come to all of his wise soothsayers and magicians and all the astrologers and all the, you know, all the tarot card readers and everybody else under the sun. And he's going to say, I want you guys to tell me what my dream was and what the interpretation is. And they're going to say, dude, are you kidding? 
we can't tell you what the dream was. You tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. He says, ah, you guys are bluffing, I can tell it. And he says this, he says, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, hey, no problem. You'll be cut in pieces and your houses will be made an ash heap. All right. Fair enough. I see where we stand. I see what kind of guy we're dealing with, right? So this is the kind of guy we're dealing with. The kind of guy that if you look at him wrong, he cuts you into pieces. After a fair trial. No, just kidding. There's no fair trials in Babylon, right? And so this chief of the eunuch says, you know what? I get this. You guys eat basically nothing for three years. And then I'm going to bring you into the court uh, to, so you're going to serve the king. You're going to look all emaciated. And guess who's going to get cut into pieces? The steward of you guys. That doesn't work. And so this guy is understandably afraid of the, of the king. And so Daniel said to the steward, who the chief of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. So Daniel goes to this guy. This is the steward now, the guy that's, that's uh, probably the, the guy that's delivering the food. Daniel goes to this steward with a proposed solution. Can I tell you something? Is if, you're a, if you find yourself being an employee or a, or a person under authority in some capacity. So let's say you're an employee, right? Does your employer handle the business or the, or the organization in such a way that there's never a problem? Does that happen? Does that happen at ELI? Is there never a problem at ELI? That's what I hear. I hear it all the time. Never a problem. Well, if there were, and if one of the employees happened to notice, we've got a problem here. I won't put anybody on the spot any more than I just did. But if the employee would notice, there's a problem here. That employee could A, say, hey, you got a problem boss, or B, you know what, I've noticed this problem, and I have a proposed solution that might work. What do you think? Which would the boss prefer to hear, A or B? B, very good. See, this is not rocket science. This is Bible study 101, right? Propose a solution. Again, Christians, what do we do too often? We rant at all the world's problems. Do we not? We are problem, we are good at problem identification. Right? Christians, are there any political problems in the world? Can you point them out? Have you pointed them out this week to everybody at the water cooler of both parties? Whether they want to hear it or not? Yeah, you have. Maybe. Right? Sociologists, are we able to identify problems? Yeah. Now, to be fair, can we fix everything? No, we can't. 
But we need to be at least somewhat solution-minded. And can I suggest that we all have opportunities, even in our own little micro-world, to be solution-oriented rather than just problem identifiers. Anybody can identify a problem. Is that fair? Anybody can identify a problem. So what does Daniel do? He says, tell you what, we've been set aside here for three years before we go approach the king. This king that you're afraid of getting chopped, he's going to chop you into pieces. We're not going to go before him before, and for three years. Give us ten days of vegetables. And at the end of that ten days, see what you think. If we look like we're all emaciated, then the deal's off. Give us the king's food and all this. Daniel is acting on faith, right? Because he's, we said he's purposed in his heart. He's not going to eat that stuff. So he proposes a solution. Just give us 10 days of vegetables. Now, raise your hand if you've ever heard somebody refer to, in some capacity, the Daniel diet. Everybody goes on the Daniel diet sooner or later, right? Well, the word for vegetables in the Hebrew means anything that grows out of the ground. So if you're on the Daniel diet, that applies to anything that grows out of the ground, including grain, wheat, etc., right? So in those days, there was no GMO wheat, so it was presumably healthy. But it's not just FYI, it's not just the broccoli and all that. And that's not the point of all this, okay? So if you want to go on the Daniel diet, God bless you. Uh, but by the way, Let's see what happens here, right? Verse 15. At the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter. When you went on that Daniel diet, were you trying to get fatter? Their are features. Appear, so you've got to read the fine print in the scriptures, right? So at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So what happened? What is this? I mean, seriously, if you're going to eat, even in those days, again, the wheat's not GMO, so it's not bad for you, right? But if you ate vegetables, maybe some grains, stuff like that, for 10 days, and all your buddies are eating pork chops and drinking wine, you'd probably not look fatter than those guys at the end of 10 days, right? But this is God's favor. This is God blessing Daniel's plan, right? Now, it's not like they weigh 500 pounds by the end of three years. The point is, God is blessing Daniel's conviction. And not only the fact that he had conviction, but how he, com how he communicates that conviction. And the fact that he has earned already the favor of those around him. And so, this is, design, this is divine favor from the Lord. Verse 17, and as for these, young, these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And so what happens? No doubt these guys, they studied Okay, they were given the language and the, and the literature of the Chaldeans. They study that. They were faithful to learn. But for sure, this is supernatural favor from God. God's given them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And by the way, for Daniel, also understanding in visions and dreams. And so Daniel has this sort of 
extra gifting. But can I point out this? There's no like Daniel's an A player and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are B players. You see this? This is important, right? Remember when God, in the parable of the talents that Jesus gave, one guy's got five talents, one guy's got two, one guy has one, right? The guy with one didn't, didn't handle it responsibly. The guy with five did. The guy with two did, right? And, you know, they were both honored. But different people have different ministries. Different people have different giftings. And I like that we see no reference in here that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego felt inferior to Daniel, even though Daniel was given extra understanding in all visions and dreams. So just for what it's worth, it's good that God gives us gifts. It's good that God gives us opportunities. And we just need to walk in what God gives us. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, so this is the end of three years, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king had examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. So what's going on here? God is setting them up. God's setting these guys up. God is putting these guys in a position of, uh, of influence in the presence of none other than the king of what is the most powerful nation in the world at this point in time. God is giving these guys a position of influence. God is giving these guys a platform in the face of Babylon. And I think if we, and again, keep in mind, I have to admit, if I were Daniel, and somebody's writing this first chapter about me, there would be a lot more dialogue about my circumstance. Does that make sense? There would be a lot, there would be a whole paragraph about how I missed my homeland. There would be a paragraph about how I got ripped away and it wasn't fair. There would be a paragraph about justice. There would be a paragraph about the Babylonians are evil anyway. There would be a paragraph about I wasn't necessarily worshiping idols back in Jerusalem. Why didn't they leave me alone? There would have been so much of that that I might have missed the opportunity to stand before the king of Babylon. Does that make sense? How often do we talk about our circumstances versus how often do we say, this is what the Lord is doing? And we may not know what the Lord is doing. But he's doing something. And it's not always dramatic. It's not always bells and whistles. Sometimes it's just calling us to be faithful wherever he takes us. If he takes us to Babylon, so be it. If, he, if he's raising us up in Jerusalem, so be it. But the idea here is, that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing before the king of the greatest country, the greatest 
empire at this point in time in the world. All because of God's sovereignty and all because of their faithfulness. And so I think sometimes when we look at life's circumstances or look at, you know, what is going on in my world, in my sphere, my time in history, my group of people that I interact with, I feel like it's all like what I'm supposed to be doing and I'm trying to figure that out and I'm trying to do it right and I'm trying all this, right? And I get pretty consumed with that sometimes. Maybe like Caesar Augustus thinks he's in charge of the world, right? And maybe God just wants to do something that I'm not even aware of. You know, he does bless me above and beyond what I can ask or think, right? Ephesians chapter 3. God wants to show himself strong on behalf of all whose hearts are fully committed to him. Second Chronicles 16.9. God wants to strengthen us. God wants to reveal himself to us. God wants to use us. And here he is with Daniel. Now, we, we, we probably won't all stand before the king. And honestly, I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> I'm okay not standing in front of a guy that, can, that might cut me in pieces. But if I am, so be it. And if I'm not, so be it. God's in control. And I love how this chapter closes out. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Now you have to know the history to realize the significance of this verse. This verse is significant. This is the postscript. King Cyrus, the first year of King Cyrus is 539 BC, which is 66 years after Daniel is captured. 66 years after Daniel's capture. It says, Dan, thus Daniel continued till the first year of King Cyrus. I think the fact that it just mentions like in a, in a postscript, if you will, really kind of speaks to the faithfulness of Daniel. It's like, yep, he was there for basically his full lifespan. So he goes there, he goes to Babylon as a teenager. He's going to be there well into his 80s, Right? Guess what he's going to do? He's going to outlive Nebuchadnezzar. Think about this. If we want to have influence in this world, Daniel outlives Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel outlives the Babylonian Empire because the Medes and Persians under Cyrus are going to take it over. And God rules over all history. It's interesting, Nebuchadnezzar wanted his kingdom to last forever. Daniel's life outlived Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. So, beware, please, 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 beware the indoctrination of Babylon that is alive and well today. Number one. Number two, determine in your mind the, the biblical convictions of the Lord that you have in your heart before the time of temptation comes. Number three, when you do interface with the world, even in direct opposition of your convictions, remember you have an opportunity to bring influence. 
how you communicate earns you the platform to speak in many situations. And don't forget that God is ultimately sovereign and he honors faithfulness to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are in control. Lord, if you were in control over Caesar Augustus and if you were in control over Nebuchadnezzar, if you were in control over the Babylonian Empire, then it's no big deal for you to be in control of my life and my circumstances and my situations and my relationships and all of that. And Lord, the same applies for all of us. So help us, please, Lord, just to be faithful servants. Help us to uh, purpose in our hearts those areas that we will not be defiled. But Lord, even as we live out those convictions, help us to live them out graciously. Help us to carry ourselves in a way that uh, the righteous should study how to, how to answer. Help us to be those kind of people. And help us to live lives that bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.